Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. Good morning. It's good to see you guys. It's good to be here this morning. The worship team, thank you to the worship team this morning. You guys were amazing. Very, very sweet time of worship. I am Pastor Nick. I'm one of the pastors here. I get the privilege of bringing the word to you this morning. Um, if you have your Bible, you can open it to the New Testament book of Ephesians for our text, for our message. If you're here this morning and for whatever reason you don't have a Bible and you'd like to follow along with us so that you can see it, it uh, the ushers are coming up and down the aisles right now with uh, Bibles. Get their attention. They'll drop one off to you. also want to welcome those of you that are joining us online this morning, those that are watching via social media, those of you that are listening on the Bridge Radio, and a special warm welcome this morning to our friend, the New York City taxi driver. We know you're out there, and you are spoken to every single message by name, and so I don't want to leave you out today either. So a welcome to everybody. What I want to do this morning is I want to read to you um, the text that we're going to be in for our message, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into the Word. And so we're in the New Testament book of Ephesians, chapter 2. It's a short passage beginning in verse 19, and through the end of the chapter, verse 22, let us uh, read the Word of God. It says this, Paul the Apostle, the author, he says, Now therefore, you are no more, no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household or the family of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building, all the house, all the family, fitly framed together, grows unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye, so my mom used to say when she was frustrated, she would go, ye, but Paul's saying, you, he's saying, in whom you also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we just know that you're already here. And Lord, we've come, we've gathered as one. We worship you, Lord, not because we want something from you, but because we want to give you uh, what you deserve this morning. And Lord, now we also want to give you our attention. We want to open our hearts and we want to receive from you. And Lord, we know that you have something for each of us this morning, and so we ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate this text and the truth that it reveals, and I pray that you would meet each one of us here, Lord, according to our need, according to what you're doing in our lives, both now and in the ages to come. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a bird's eye view and vision of your purpose, of your love, of your power, of your plan, and that you would give us hope, Lord, in the things that we can't see and can't understand and that you would fulfill all of your promise to each of us. And so I pray, Lord, that your word would find its mark in every heart, every person here, whether they're lost or saved or curious or any other place in between. I pray, Lord, that you would speak here. So we give place to your word now, and we ask you, Father, that you would move for us in Jesus' name. Amen. A number of years ago, I was on a short-term mission in the United Kingdom and a member of our team was a, a young, younger guy in the youth group from the church I was going to at the time. And uh, he was newly saved, but truly saved. And he had a, a fire in him and a passion. And he was really fun and fun to be around. And he loved the Lord. And uh, God had really just done a great work in his life. And we were walking on the streets of, uh, of Newtown in, in the United Kingdom. And um, as we were there, he began to open up to me. And he began to say that he was struggling. And he said, uh, he said, you know I, know, I know that I'm different. And he says, I know that God is real and I know that I believe. He goes, but, but I feel like there's something inside of me that's just faking it. And he said that I, I feel like, uh, like I, I, I know something's there, but, but I feel like, like I'm a phony and it's only a matter of time before everybody figures it out. And he says, I always feel like I'm running from something, that this isn't my true identity and it's a real struggle. And so we, we talked through and we were able to talk through some things, but, but I could relate to him and it was rubbing something in me uh, because as much as I was ministering to him in that moment, I couldn't help but be honest uh, with the fact that I felt that same something inside of me. And, and I've come to realize that that wasn't something that was uh, unique to him or to me, 
but it's something that I think uh, is, is uh, a part of what it means to be a Christian, to be a member of the body of Christ, to be bought by him. I, I've come to learn that that has a term. There's actually a name for that feeling. It's called imposter syndrome. You know, the, the idea that you are, uh, you're, you're a part of something, but you don't feel like you really belong in it. And it can happen in any area of life. It can happen uh, in the workplace. It can happen in social settings where you're in a group of people. You just feel like you don't belong there. Uh, it certainly can happen at CrossFit or in the gym. You're like, why am I here? I know I'm supposed to be, but I don't want to be, you know. And uh, certainly it can happen in the family of God. It can happen in the church that you can feel that way. Uh, as much as you want to, you can't escape the feeling that maybe I don't fit in all of this. Uh, I'm not sure I have a place in the body of Christ. You know, uh, every now and again, you hear about somebody who kind of hides in the landing gear of an airplane, trying to escape a situation in a country where they are either a prisoner or a political prisoner. And so just in a desperation, they'll just cling to the uh, landing gear and just hope that they survive. And sometimes you feel like, I, I don't want to go to hell. I believe enough in Jesus, but I don't fit in the church. And so I just hope I can hide in the landing gear uh, long enough. That, that I can just get into heaven and I'll be happy if I can do that. Well, what I want to tell you this morning, if you've ever felt that or if you are feeling that or if you live in the sense of like, am I really in him? Do I really have a place in him? What I want to tell you with Paul and by the spirit of God this morning is that you have a place. And that's my subject this morning, that you have a place in him. It's not, you're not an accident. Let me give you some context uh, to back up our text this morning because we jumped in in the middle of a, uh, of a letter. We jumped in with the word therefore, which kind of like is pregnant with context before it and after it. The Apostle Paul was a man who was sent by God to bring the message of Jesus to non Jewish nations, to Gentile nations. And in his travels and his missions, he came into the region of Asia Minor and specifically into the city of Ephesus, the ancient Greek city of Ephesus. It's in modern day Turkey. It's located kind of on the southwest corner of the um, Aegean Sea where it meets the Mediterranean, a very important area. It was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. It was a cultural epicenter. It was economically powerful. It was very influential uh, in the Greek and Roman world. And when Paul arrived there, and you can read about it in the book of Acts chapter 19, God moved in a very powerful way and a church was born. We don't know how large the church became, but we know that it was a very powerful church and a very influential church. We know that the work of God there was so uh, um, profound that Paul spent more time there than he did in any one single place for any single amount of time, at least three years. We know that Paul spent enough time there that he could say to them that he had given them the whole counsel of God. That's the equivalent of being able to teach them the whole Bible in the context of his own experience. We know that the work there was so powerful that riots uh, and trouble was stirred up because of the way it was affecting the culture. The church was uh, interrupting pagan businesses and money was kind of being interrupted in the flow of it. And oh, if you, want, if you want to upset the world, just stop the flow of money, you know? And, and sure enough, that's what happened because people were being so changed that it was having an impact on the sin economy that was going on in Ephesus. It was a very powerful change church. It was one of the most healthy of the New Testament churches. Uh, if you were a Christian in those days, you were probably singing worship songs in your local church that were written in Ephesus. Your sanctuary was probably designed according to the way they laid things out in Ephesus. The intelligent oil lighting of the day was designed in Ephesus. It was just a very healthy New Testament first century church. And Paul left there in time, and, and the Spirit moved him to write a letter. That's what we have in front of us here in the book of Ephesians. It's the letter that Paul, who started the church, later on, he then communicated to the church. And the context of the entire letter, the theme or the reason behind the Spirit of God wanting to communicate with this group of people is in the passage that we read here this morning in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. 
And when you hear what he says and you listen to the words that are there, you get the idea that, that the Spirit of God is talking to a group of people that are struggling with a bit of imposter syndrome. And if you think about it, it makes sense that they would be. It's a group of people that are from a Roman city that's been framed by Grecian culture and dominated by pagan religion. That's the roots of all the people that were living in Ephesus. But now there's a group of people, a church there in that city, and these people have given their lives over to follow a Jewish Messiah, and they've been flooded with Israeli custom and foreign traditions that are so different than anything that they had known or that, uh, w- that, that kind of harmonized with them naturally. It's contrary to their background, their culture, their upbringing, their nature, their natural religion. On top of that, there was a group of people that are called the Judaizers that were following Paul around, and they were telling all of the Gentile churches that they were illegitimate, that because they weren't Jewish or because they weren't circumcised, that they were second class at best and probably nothing at all. And so they had this constant barrage of voices saying, you don't count, you don't count. On top of that, they had the inner struggle that my friend in the United Kingdom had of the devil constantly saying, it's not really real. It's not really real. You're phony. You're a hypocrite. You're doing things and you don't even know why you're doing them. And so the Spirit presses upon Paul to write this letter to them wherein God would let these people know that they are not merely being tolerated by God, but they have been specifically chosen by God and they have an equal place in God with all of the others that he would call. And no matter how spiritual you are here this morning, no matter how much you love God, no matter how much your history is, no matter how long you've been walking with him, there is a struggle inside of every one of us that arises from time to time where we think, is this really real? Do I really have a place in him? Is this a mistake? Did I get saved by mistake? Am I that person that heard the message by accident and I wasn't really supposed to? And we all can struggle with that from time to time. Sometimes we feel like we don't have a place in the body of Christ. Sometimes we feel like we can't find our place in the body of Christ. Sometimes we feel like we've lost our place in the body of Christ because of our actions or our decisions or our choices. Sometimes we feel like all the good places are taken already and there's not a good one left for me. Sometimes we feel like there isn't a place that I actually fit that being a Christian, the opportunities don't match up with my desires or my abilities. And we can sometimes feel like Forrest Gump singing in the choir. That scene always stands out in my mind. If you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. If not, cut it from your tape. (laughs) But Ephesians was written, at least in part, as a guide to help us to find our place. Okay, if we feel at all that, that, that we have uh, become lost in this. Now, let me build it for you a little bit. Okay, chapter one, because I just told you the context of the letters around this little obscure passage. So let me prove it to you briefly and then get into my uh, substance here. Chapter one of Ephesians begins with the most beautiful description of everything that is already ours the moment we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. He, he says in Ephesians 1.3, he says that he has blessed us. Not he will, not he's going to, not he's in the process of. He has blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in grace. And then he just begins to highlight all of those things for about a half a chapter or so. And those promises and those places that he says are already ours are so far beyond our ability to comprehend and understand that he ends chapter one with a prayer asking God to give to us a supernatural revelation and understanding and enlightenment to comprehend it. Because without a revelation from God, you will never be able to understand what it means that you have all the things that are written in chapter one. It's already yours. That's what he says in chapter one. Then when he gets into chapter two, he begins that chapter by giving a contrast to all of us between what we were before we knew Christ and what we are now, now that we are in Christ. 
He says, before we were in him, we had no place. Look up in your Bible to chapter 2, verse 11. He says, wherefore, remember that you being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, unsaved people, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time, before you knew him, you were without Christ, being aliens, foreigners, strangers, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's what you were. But, verse 13, now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes or once were afar off are made near by the blood of Christ. You were lost and without hope. You are now grafted in and you have hope and you have place in him. And so he says in verse 14, for he is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition that was between us. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross and opened up salvation to you, and you opened your heart up and let it in, and you became one with Jesus, at that point, there is no longer a wall or a border between Jerusalem and Ephesus. They are one. There is no longer a border between those that were lost and, and, and God. <laughs> that border between lost people and God was removed. You're not lost anymore. And, and the border that existed between you and finding where you fit, finding your place, your reason, that border has been abolished. Jesus has taken it away. And then Paul sums it up in verse 19, which is our text, by saying, now therefore, because of all of this, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but are fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Okay, he uses the word citizens there, and he says fellow citizens, and the word means that you are equal citizens. You're not second class to anyone that's ever known God before, or anyone that was Jewish and now knows God, or anyone that was saved in a particular era, or anyone that is used by God in a particular manner. You are not second class to anyone. You are fellow citizens with him. And that citizenship is present tense. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, it says that you are citizens, that your citizenship is in heaven. You already have your naturalization card for heaven. If you are in Christ Jesus this morning, you are fellow citizens, he says, with the saints, okay? There's no distinction between saints and you. And then he says, of the household of God at the end of verse 19, and that literally is the family of God. Now listen to me. You, if you're in Christ Jesus here this morning, and if you're not yet, maybe you will be by the end of the service today. You are a part of the family of God, and you are therefore a part of the kingdom of God. You are a citizen in it, and you need to understand this, is that the kingdom of God is alive and functioning on the earth today, right now. Jesus said in Mark uh, I think I'm going to quote that verse a little bit later, but he said that, that the, you're going to see the kingdom of God coming with power. And it began on the day of Pentecost and it is alive and functioning on the earth today. It will extend eternally. And that means that your place in that kingdom has already been established. If you're a citizen in it, and it is currently functioning, then God has already ordained that place for you. And I need you to understand this, is that your place in his kingdom is more than a set of degrees on the compass. It is not a place physically. It is not a house physically. When Jesus talked about the, 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 the mansions in John 14, when he said that I am going to prepare a place for you, he wasn't speaking, and I'll say uniquely or 
only about a house, because maybe there is. Maybe there's this massive mansion in heaven. You know, I, I know there's probably a group of us here that don't really get too excited about that. You know, like, okay, uh, you know, a big house. Yeah, there's more I got to clean or look after, you know. I don't think so. When the Bible talks about a house, usually it's talking about something more. When God said to David, I'm going to build you a house, he was talking about his lineage and what he would become in the ages to come and the role that his family line would play in God's kingdom eternally. And I believe that when Jesus said that, that he's preparing a place, a mansion, it's more along those lines. It's not where we're going to live when we get to heaven, but it's the function of what we will be eternally. And that begins in the moment you give your life to Jesus Christ. You don't wait until you die and then God goes down and goes, oh, let me see what I got open for you. Okay, there it is. No, it's already there. It's already in you. It's more than just a ministry. It's a place. It's a purpose. It's a function that fits you. It's not a position at church. It's not, you know, something that I do for God on the weekends, but rather your place is an extension of who you are and who you were made to be. It's your reason. It's your function. It reaches to the core of your very being. It's drawn from the root of your personality. And it's kind of what we mean when we say of someone that they found their calling. They found the place outwardly that matches what they were made to be inwardly. And when you think of things in those terms, all of a sudden, an auto mechanic can be way more than a job or a way to pay the bills. It's a function. It's a talent. It's something that comes. It's just the expression of something that's deeper, something that's bigger. To be a dad is more than just being an ATM machine or someone who keeps order in the house or that the kids are afraid of. You know, to be a dad, it's an extension of something that God has placed in you that's eternal. Your career or your work is more than just paying bills and choosing something to do for a bunch of years before you stop and retire and just collect on all of that. No, we were made for something. We were made for more than just to provide for ourselves. And so our reason or our place here is the beginning of what we were eternally made for. That's why sometimes you see someone who is really enjoying their work and what they do. And, and you just look at them and they just fit in that place. And, and that's why they're so joyful. And it's like they're not even working. They're working and it's hard and they're carrying it. But, but there's something that fits so well about it, and they love it so much that you say, man, that's what it's all about. It's also the reason why there's some people that just choose something that has no place within them, but they're just attracted to it, or they fall into it, and they get into it, and they make a lot of money, but they hate it, and they're miserable. And they think, why am I even alive right now? Because there's a misfitment, that's a word, you can write it, you can you know, put it in the dictionary, between what they're doing and what they were made to do. Because we're made for more than just to survive. There is a purpose, okay? Now, what does he go on to say? He says that you are, you have a place. He says you are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, watch this, verse 21. In whom all the building, all the house, love this word, ready? Fitly framed together. Fitly framed, okay? Two words there, fitly and framed. Fitly means that you are fitted, like a fitted suit, okay? It means that you are outfitted or the place that God is ultimately preparing you for, that he is outfitting you for that place. And he's outfitted the place for you, that it is particular, like a jigsaw puzzle piece. It is made specifically to fit in one place. The one piece fits in one place. It's not a plethora. It's not a choice. It's not a group. It is singular. It is outfitted, but then it's framed. To frame something means that you're placing it in its home. So first it's been prepared. It's been fitted. And then it is framed. It is put into its place. And that's what he says. He says that God both prepares the piece... And then he places the piece right where it's supposed to go. It has been fitly framed, and then it grows and increases as a dwelling place for the Lord. And then he takes it home in verse 22 by saying, in whom you also. Now, who is he talking to? You also. 
not just the Ephesian church, but he's talking to you in whom you also are built together for a habitation of God through the Holy Spirit. That is that you are being composed and constructed. You are being outfitted and infitted in a place. God says you have a place. So the question is, if we have a place, if God has something specifically in mind for every one of us, why does it often feel like I'm out of place or that I've lost my place or that I can't enjoy my place? Whatever. Why do I feel like I've been a Christian for 20 years and yet I'm still somehow going to end up in the special needs building in heaven? You know, like it's, okay, well, we got to let him in. We're, we made a promise and he prayed the prayer. So bring him in, you know, we'll get, get, make sure he's fed, you know, and the whole thing. You know, why do I still feel like that when the Bible so emphatically declares that, that, that there's so much more than that in the whole thing? How do I know it? Okay, I want to give you three reasons why we still feel this way. And, and you'll relate to every one of them. No, I'm going to give you the three. Number one is Pentecost. Number two is perception. And number three is preparation. You could write those words down. Now, let's talk about Pentecost for a minute. When I, when I look at your life, okay, and I know most of you to some degree, we have a rapport, you know, and when I, when I look at your life, it's very easy for me to see God. I see God in you. I see God in the way that you stand. I see it I see in the way that you relate to others. I see God in the way that you stand up in your difficulties and in your trials. I see God in the way that you interact with each other. I'm I'm kind of an introvert you know, more of an observer, but I watch and I see the way people interact and I watch body language and I see, and, and in all of those things, I see God. And it's, it's such an amazing thing to be able to see and to watch. And so I learn from you. I watch and I say, that's what it looks like when God is working in a life. Like I can see that's the spirit of God. That's the spirit of God. Okay. Now, most of you have no idea that I see that and you have no idea what I see. It's just, it's foreign to you because it's familiar to you, all right? Now, when Jesus said in Mark chapter 9, verse 1, he said that there are some of you that are standing here that are, will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God coming with power, okay? He was talking about Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit would come upon the church and the kingdom would take up residence upon this earth in the people of God that were saved and sealed by his spirit. And it happened. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. It says, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all gathered together in one place. And it says there was the sound of a mighty rushing wind. And it says that the spirit came down and it was like cloven tongues of fire that came down and rested upon each one of them. And it says that they began to speak with tongues. They began to uh, prophesy. They began to praise God. And in a powerful move of God happened that day, and it's been continuing on in the world ever since Acts chapter 2. But what I find amazing about that experience when God poured out his spirit is that the placement of that fire upon the people of God was in one of the only places on the human body that it is impossible for you to see without help. You cannot see the top of your head. And no one can see their own fire. You can see the fire in everyone else, but you can't see the fire in yourself. I have five kids, and all five of my kids have fire on top of their head. And as their dad, I can see the fire in all five. Now, them, they, they only see the fire in the other four. They can't see the fire in themselves. And so they all think they lack because they don't have the fire that they see in the other four, at least not to the same degree. Not one of my four kids has Hosanna's strength. Not one of them. Not one of my four kids has Rocky's consistency and stability. Not one of my four kids, well, or four, has Sarah's intelligence and ability to influence. She doesn't even know it. Not one of my kids has Riley's joy. I mean, the kid is unshakable. He strikes out in baseball with a smile on his face and just walks back to the dugout. It's unshakable. None of them have it but him. And not one of them have Noah's talent. Not one, okay? Now, they all have fire, 
but they see each other and they think they lack. All of them. I don't have, I'm not, where's God? You know, what's he got for me? They can't see their own fire, okay? We see it in the Bible. Peter saw John. Yeah, Lord, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? John outran Peter. <laughs> the 12, they fought amongst each other. Like, who's going to be greatest? I'm going to be better than you. You know, the whole thing. We compare ourselves with other people. And anytime you compare yourself with someone else, you are going to come up short because you don't have what they have. That's why the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he said, they that compare themselves among themselves are not wise. Okay, because you can't be someone else. You don't have what someone else has. It's fitted, it's framed for you, okay? But if you're looking at others, trying to define what your place is, you're always gonna feel like you're not in your place. So what's the solution? Stop looking out the window and start looking in the mirror. What do you mean? Okay, the window is what we use to view out the mirror is what we use to view in, all right? And if you want to see the fire that's in you, then you've got to look in the mirror. What's the mirror? James chapter 1 says that the word is like a mirror. And when we look into the word of God, we can see ourselves. So what does God say about you? He says that he loves you. He says that he chose you. He says that he knows you. He says that he's counted the number of hairs that are on your head. He says that he's prepared a future and a hope. He's prepared a place. He's moving in your life. He's intentional and he's specific. And I have the choice to believe what God says about me through the reflection of his word, or I can just look at everyone else and always feel like I'm coming up short. The choice is mine. Not just Pentecost. That's not the only reason why we always feel imposter syndrome. But there's also perception. One of the greatest flaws of fallen humanity, and every single one of them is a, us is a victim to it, is that we are impressionable, and we are persuadable, and we are gullible. All right? Every one of us, we have that problem. That's why advertisers make so much money. That's why there is a such thing as marketing, because people know that we are impressionable and we are persuadable. We are exploited. We are this whole thing. So here's what they do. Here's why they're so good, because what they do is they paint a picture and they plant ideas into us and they create perceptions inside of us of what something is going to be like. We see like a brand new, you know, Bronco, like driving through the sands of a coastal beach with people with the top, you know, back and the windows down and wind blowing through their hair and beautiful people. And they're, they're like a, a trailer full of food and they're all alone and there's palm trees. And we go, yeah, that's life, man. I want to be in that scene. Who doesn't want to be in that scene, Right? That's what it is. And so all of a sudden we think, well, if I was really living, then that's what I would be doing because, man, that looks like life. It's not even real. They just painted and created that whole thing right there. You ever read about the people that are like big on Instagram? They spend, they take 10,000 photos before they pick the one they're going to post. They're like, no, that one's just, there's a slight wrinkle in my sleeve. It's not right. Cut it. Cut it. And then once they finally, yes, that's the one, post it. And then you look at it and you go, oh. listen, someone else's highlight reel, all right, is always going to be better than your real life. <laughs> so you can't go by the perception that has been created. Now, we are also gullible. And here's, here's what I mean by that, is that sometimes we lie to ourselves. We create what we think life is supposed to be like. Well, if I was really blessed by God, my life would, would look like this. And we create like this thing that doesn't, it doesn't exist. God didn't even say it. It's unique maybe for someone else, but it doesn't apply to us. And we think, well, that's the way it's supposed to be. That's life in the whole thing. Let me ask you a question. How many of you wanted to be married and you thought it was going to be something? And then you got married and you said, this isn't what I thought. <laughs> How many of you wanted a house and you thought, this is going to be great. Then you got the house, and then you said, this isn't what I thought. 
How many of you wanted a career or a position? And then you got the position and you said, this isn't what I thought. Perception is not reality. Can I get an amen on that? Like, do we understand that's it's not real life in the whole thing. It's a snapshot. And we all have the perception of what we think life should be like. Jacob, he's been walking with God for a lot of years now. He's been going with him, walking with him. God's been doing things in his life. And he comes to this wall. He hits this like tipping point. He, he comes to this place where, where, where he's got one enemy behind him. He's got another enemy in front of him. He can't run any direction because no matter where he runs, he's going to have to face his past. And he's just struggling. So he separates all of his people and things and he goes by himself and he's by this brook and he's sleeping all night. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. And sometimes I wish Jesus would show up, you know, like he, like he did with Jacob. He doesn't really do that, you know. But Jesus shows up. And he just begins to wrestle with Jacob in the middle of the night. And they're like having out. And Jacob's like, I've been waiting for this. And he throws down the staff and he rolls up his robe, you know, and he's like, come on, you know, and I, I, I'm not the only one, I hope, you know, but, but all of a sudden he starts wrestling, wrestling, wrestling. And they wrestle all night to the break of day. There's no winner. They're just going back and forth. And Lord's probably playing with them like a cat, you know, just like, <laughs> you know, the whole thing. You can't beat, you can't fight God and win, Right. So they're wrestling, and then the sun begins to come up, and Jesus says to Jacob, Jesus says, let me go, it's sunshine, the day is coming. And Jacob says these words to Jesus. He says, I will not let you go until you bless me. Let me go. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. When you bless me, I will let you go. And so finally, Jesus goes, ah, and he gives him a whack in the hip or something. And his hip goes out of joint. He goes, ah. And then Jesus begins to speak, speak on his life. And he says, okay, your name was Jacob. You'll be Israel, the whole thing. Listen, listen. Go back and read the earlier chapters of Genesis. 30 years before that wrestling match, Jesus blessed Jacob then. He was already blessed. He spoke the things over Jacob's life that he had spoken over Abraham's life and over Isaac's life. It was spoken over his life at the beginning. But he had this perception that it should look a certain way. I wouldn't have problems if I was really blessed by God. Everything would always just come easy if I was blessed by God. It would be like Abraham. It would be like Isaac if I was blessed by God. He had a perception in his mind of what he thought it would be, and he thought he didn't have something he already had. Meanwhile, he was raising in his household the heads of the 12 tribes, what would become the nation of Israel. He was already the most honored man or one of in all of Old Testament history. And here he is thinking, well, I'm not blessed. I'm not blessed. I'm not blessed. How many of us miss out on what we already have because we're looking on the horizon for something that's right in front of us or something that we're living in and maybe we're just too close to it to realize it. Or maybe we've created a perception of something that's not real. We've lied to ourselves that it's going to be a certain way. When in reality, God is doing it right now, and we're just not recognizing, we're not seeing it. It's amazing to me that it took a broken hip for Jacob to begin to realize what he already had. It was already there. Perception. David. He was the king, and he thought, he perceived in his mind, well, that the best king of Israel would build the temple. The best king is going to build the temple. They're going to bring God's center of the nation. The best king is going to build the temple. He said, God, I want to build a temple. God says, no, you can't build a temple. And David lived out his days thinking that he missed the mark. Ah, I was a man of blood. I didn't do it. If maybe it was Bathsheba, the whole thing. My perception, build the temple. God's perception, prepare the temple. And yet David, didn't he go down as the greatest king in all of Israel's history? He was the one that God had chosen all along, right? Moses, his perception, my role, my place is to bring them in. God's perception was bring them out. It's not your place to bring them in. I'm going to use Joshua for that. I've got a different idea for your life than you have for your life, but trust me, you're going to be okay with it when you get there. The church in Ephesus, what are we here for? Why am I saved? Why did God plant me in this place? What's the point? Is this even real? Meanwhile, they were the healthiest church in all of the New Testament, thinking that they weren't even part of it. You and I, we say, when I finally get into the blessing of God, then my marriage is going to be. 
and my family's going to be, and my kids are going to be, and my bank account's going to be, and my mental stability and emotional health is going to be. And we get this whole thing of what it's going to be, what it's going to be, what it's going to be. No, no, he hath blessed us. And everything that he's doing in your life is a part of that, whether you can see it or not. And maybe, maybe you're not enjoying it because you're looking out on the horizon for something that you already have inside of you, or you're waiting for something to happen that's already happening right now. My point is, you have a place. Number three is preparation. You see those words back up? We read them before, fitted and outfitted. You know, the whole puzzle piece idea that you've been fitted and you're going to be outfitted. You know, God is committed to shaping us for the place. And he is simultaneously working us in that place and shaping us for that place. It's a process that's happening right now. And there's this relational thing that's going on between us and God all the time where he is preparing us for the place. Last, not this Wednesday, but one, a week and a half ago, Wednesday night, I was talking about the complication of having a relationship with God. And it is complicated. It is a relationship, and it is real, and it is powerful, and it is awesome, but it is complicated to have a relationship with God. And the reason, the number one reason why it is complicated is because of the roles that God plays in our life. The more roles a person plays in in another person's life, the more complicated that relationship is, bottom line. If you're a parent, you understand it. You are both the healer and you are the wounder, and that is complicated. (laughs) right? And and I just want to read, let me just read you this list of all the roles God says that he plays in our lives. He is savior, shepherd, father, mother, trainer, coach, healer, shaper, helper, advocate, warrior, spouse, teacher, Lord, refiner, provider, protector, and friend. And I know I read that quickly, but that's a lot of hats for one person to wear in a relationship that's supposed to be the number one relationship. And it is very difficult for me because anytime I'm in the presence of the Lord, I am trying really hard to see what hat he's wearing. Who are you right now? Because who you are right now is going to greatly affect the way I feel in this moment. Remember Moses? Of course you do. (laughs) Everybody knows Moses. Moses, God comes to Moses at the burning bush. And he goes, Moses, I am for you, and I got a plan for you, and you're going to save Israel, and you're going to be one of the greatest men that ever lived, and, and I'm with you. I'm going to be with your mouth, and I'm going to send Aaron, and you're going to have help, and it's, I'm going to move, and it's going to be powerful. He comes to him as savior. He comes as shepherd. He comes as leader and Lord. He comes as all these things, and Moses is like, all right, I'm going to go. And so Moses goes. He gathers his family, and he starts going, and all of a sudden, he sees a man coming towards him in the distance, and he recognizes that it's the Lord. Only he's got a sword in his hand and a scowl on his face. And, he, and he's like, Lord? And the Lord's like, I'm going to kill you right now. And, and he's like, wait, what? And he's like, I'm going to kill you right now. And the Lord jumps on him. It was because he didn't circumcise his sons. And you can read, read the text. And Moses knew it. Moses' wife knew it. There was an area of his life that was out of place. And the one who was just his shepherd and his friend and his savior is now his executioner. Like one minute later. And, and that's complicated, right? Like, God, what are you doing? Here, here's the point, because you're like, oh, what do I do? <laughs> Listen, God is whatever he needs to be in the moment that is right now to make sure that you are fitted and prepared and functioning healthily in the place that he has prepared for you. And if he has to come to you as your shepherd, your healer, your doctor, your helper, or your executioner, All of those things are intended with the self-same purpose of making sure that you are functioning healthily in your place, and he alone knows how to do it, and he will do it. But that preparation will determine the things that are going on inside my life. And if he is doing something in my life that is unfamiliar or uncomfortable, then it can make me feel like I don't have a place. But if he is doing anything in your life today, right now, It is an indication that you have a place, but preparation plays a role. So what do I do? You say, okay, I have a place. That place is eternal. It is working in me right now. He's fitly framed it all. I am part of it. What is my proper response to it all? Because I still feel like I don't have a place, and I still feel like I'm an imposter, and I don't fit. Paul gives the answer in chapter three, because he begins chapter three by kind of saying, hey, this is my whole ministry, guys. God sent me to the Gentile churches. This is what he, this is my place. My place is to tell you guys this and to make sure that you're established in it. 
And he says, and so for this reason, because of all of this that I've shared with you thus far, he says this. He says, I bow my knees before the Father of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ, of, uh, of, before whom the whole earth is called. This whole thing, he says, it's chapter 3, verse uh, 15, verse 16. He says that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. And here it is, ready? That you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend or understand with all saints what is the breadth, length, depth, and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Here is the response for you, okay? It is to root yourself or plant yourself in his love. By contrast, we are not to root ourselves in the ideas of what we think should happen in our lives. I'm going to draw from what I'm waiting for. I'm going to set a goal and I'm going to draw from the strength of that goal. We are not to draw from what we see God doing in someone else's life. I see God moving in them this way. So when God moves in my life that way, then I'll know he's with me. I'm going to put my roots in it. We're not to draw from anything that we see or think. We're to draw from the fact he loves me. He knows me. He called me. He didn't run out of faces yet to make and, and give people. He didn't run out of fingerprints yet to make and to give people. And he didn't run out of places yet to make and to give people. And he says to me that I have a place. And so I am going to root myself in the fact that he loves me and he's committed to me. And I'm not going to worry about what I feel like. I'm not going to worry about what it looks like or what's happening in my life right now. I am going to stand upon. I'm going to root myself in the fact that he has made a promise and that he cannot deny himself. He will keep his promise. You may not see for most of your adult life, you might not see at all in this life the fullness of what that place is. In fact, I know none of us will see the fullness of it. You may get a glimpse, you know. But here's what he promises, and it's Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. He says, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. I can tell you this, is that whatever the place is, that he has prepared for you. It is more, it is bigger, it is better than anything that you could conjure up in your mind, anything that you could think or dream up out there in the heavens where maybe your roots are somewhere, like up in the ideas <laughs> place. It is bigger, it is better, it is grander. If you are here this morning and you are 15 or 16 years old and you're frustrated because you have not been purposed yet in your life, root yourself in his love. If you are an older person and you've been married for 35 years and you are still not getting along with your spouse and you think, well, when is this going to get better or when is this going to end? You stay rooted in his love because he may be using that conflict with your spouse to do things that will affect three generations down the line right now that you have no idea what he's doing. But I promise you that if you would root yourself in his love, you will see the intentional purpose behind every little thing that God is doing in your life. So root yourself in there. And by the Spirit of God, I declare to you this morning, you have a place. Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you this morning for your word, for your promise, for your absolute truth. And God, we recognize that we cannot write our own course or chart our own destiny. That it is only in you and in the intention that you have placed upon our life and the invitation that you've given us to be a part of your family that we could truly find what that place is. And so I ask this morning, oh God, that we would be able to remove our roots from anything that we've placed them in and that they might be set surely and securely and firmly in who you are and in the promise that you made and in the blood of your son and in the same ground that held the cross of Calvary. So God, would you help us? Would you change our perception? Would you open our eyes to see what you've placed inside of us? Would you give to us an understanding of what you're doing in our lives in this moment right now and that you would make sense, God, even of the things that are struggles for us and that are confusing to us. And I pray, Lord, that by your spirit and in your love, every one of us 
would feel like we have a place, that none of us would feel like we're imposters in this calling that you've placed on us. So would you help us now? We ask you, Lord, please move in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be here this morning, and you may not know Jesus Christ personally. Here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that you, you can do anything you want, but you cannot be anything you want. Because when God made you, even though you didn't know him, he knew you. And he made you for a specific cause, and the only place you will ever find to inform what your true identity is, is in him, because you were made to be in a relationship with him. And God, through the person of his son, Jesus, made every provision and way for you to be in a peaceable relationship with Jesus. What he did on Calvary's cross, he absorbed all of your sin, all of your guilt, all of the wrath that was appointed towards you, and he removed it, and he also removed the separation that existed between you and God. And if you will open your heart to Jesus this morning and say yes to his invitation to be in relationship with him, his promise which is as sure as the sun rising and the sun setting day by day, is that he will forgive your sin, he will come into your life by the person of his Holy Spirit, and he will begin a work of renewing and changing you like he did for the Ephesian church and those of us that have put our, our faith in him. And I want you to know that that invitation is open to you this morning and God is reaching out to you. And if you need Jesus in your life, quickly, I want you to just pray this prayer with me. And everybody, you can whisper it under your breath so no one feels like they're, they're praying alone. But if you want to open your heart to Jesus, just pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, I open my heart to you. And I know that I need a Savior. And I believe your promise is true. You said that to as many as received him, he gave them the right to be in the family of God. So would you let me into your family? And would you come into my heart? I believe that you died for me, that you rose again. And I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. Thank you for saving me. Please fill me with your spirit and put me in my place, in your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer this morning, would you just be brave and just maybe just shoot your hand up quick and say, hey, I opened my heart to Jesus this morning. I see a couple of hands around. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. We're going to close in worship. I pray God be with you. I pray he bless you. I pray he give you a beautiful week. And we'll see you guys midweek. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback. So if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.